Welcome to You Masterclass, the film podcast produced by students in the film studies program at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. I'm Eleanor Rose, and I'm happy to welcome my co-host. Hi, I'm Jackie Celestino. We're recording this special series of BLM-focused episodes in the midst of a pandemic via Zoom, so there will be some discrepancies in the audio. Thank you for understanding. I am pleased to welcome Goyland Williams for this episode. Williams is a third-year PhD student at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. His research interests are broadly in performance and African-American rhetoric, more specifically understanding the way social movements manifest on both a personal dynamic and national scale, using the lens of Black studies, communication, and philosophy. Among the array of stereotypes we continue to see in films about Black people, the most dangerous and pervasive of them is the violent Black man. Media in the U.S. has shaped and continues to perpetuate a narrative of fear around Black people. Could you speak to your relationship with films and TV growing up and how that shaped the way you viewed yourself in context to everyone else? That's a, that's a great question. I think you make a very prescient point about the sort of the role of the sort of violent Black man. And so growing up, I saw, you know, tons of film and movies that sort of characterize Black men as violent, as absent from the home, the family structure, right, as being criminal, lazy, lethargic, pathological, right? And then I thought about the ways that the sort of, um, I engaged my own family, right, engaged the men in my family, and I saw the opposite of that, right? So there was this sort of tension between what I saw on TV, right, versus what I saw actually in reality. And so fortunately, I was always a critical thinker. I've always had access to areas such as speech and debate that allowed me to exercise my sort of critical faculties to think that the ways that these sort of notions and scripts, cultural scripts, right, are embedded, right, in a uh, bedrock of sort of white supremacy. So it was easier to be sort of begin to reject those messages. But yeah, they absolutely become internalized when that's all you see about the people that you know and that you look like. It was always salient, I think, or very present uh, in my upbringing, and even still uh, today, which has sort of um, sparked me to do research primarily in the area of black male studies, right, to where we're thinking and refuting sort of negative tropes and stereotypes of, of black men as these sort of characterizations that you articulate. This villainization of black men is among the many stereotypes we see emerge in the early days of film. Birth of a Nation was the first big blockbuster film in the United States. Essentially racist propaganda, it retold the story of the South, which made black characters seem like threats to white women and their safety. The KKK was portrayed as heroes, and as a result, they regained popularity from this film, and it further instilled early on that white was good and black was bad. These ideas were reinforced in both films and media coverage, but were further perpetuated in society. I think we see it now, right, with films, right, of the 13th sort of capturing brilliantly the ways that sort of white womanhood, right, and black masculinity are oftentimes diametrically sort of seen as sort of these, um, the ways of who can 
sort of a discourse on the nation about who belongs and who doesn't belong, right? As you sort of eloquently articulate, right, from periods um, following, shortly following an Emancipation Proclamation, right? You saw the sort of height of white womanhood become sort of weaponized to where that any free black man, property owning, successful black man could be a falsely accused by a white woman and that automatically meant that he was guilty. There was no trial by a jury of quote unquote his peers, right? So there was never a sort of time and place in which black men, right, were ever thought to be vulnerable to white women, but rather they were thought to be the predators who instilled fear and cited fear in white women and thus in the sort of white society writ large. So I think we sort of don't, these same tropes and these same narratives sort of get replayed over and over again, right? Reagan into to the 1990s, right, with these crime, three strikes crime bills. One, it was the sort of narrative that black men was inherently criminal, but right, we pitted that against sort of what we thought white womanhood represents, right? So we have, luckily or fortunately, we have scholars today writing about the sort of danger sort of a white womanhood. You have a historian, uh, Stephanie Joan Rogers, who writes a book called They Were Her Property, and when she talks about the ways that white women were active in the slave trade and owning slaves, right? And usually we think of that as only property owning white men, right? And not sort of white women having this sort of agent of power, right? And sort of participating in white supremacy. Dr. Tommy Curry, who is a preeminent philosopher of black male studies, now at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, has started a whole field called Black Male Studies. He has a book called The Man Not, and how particularly he articulates these sort of concerns that you're talking about when he theorizes this concept of Black male vulnerability. And he's pitting this specifically against our sort of common sort of gender norms and gender theories, right, that sort of suggests, right, that Black men are unable to be sort of vulnerable because they are men. Right, they're male, thus they inherently ascribe, quote-unquote, right, to sort of white supremacist patriarchal power. And we know, given the sort of social um, and economic and scientific sort of statistics, that black men do not possess this sort of patriarchal power predominantly because patriarchy requires that you have some sort of social and economic power to perpetuate in which somebody is inherently subservient to you. You don't see that in our society writ large. Now that doesn't mean that you don't see acts of violence or acts of misogyny, but to talk about black men as if they are inherently these sort of same type of people as white men or white women, that's one, a historical, and two, it's outright fallacious. So so yeah, I think it's a it's sort of a, a trope that sort of never goes away from reconstruction, primarily where you see the rise of the KKK, the rise of lynch mobs as black people started to sort of being represented in a society as leaders and political thinkers, Rick Douglas, you sort of see all of this stuff. Um, and then you see it now, right? Barack Obama's presidency. Um, and then these sort of tropes again of sort of the KKK sort of reemerging at the height of Obama's success. And then, of course, with Donald Trump, you see the sort of backlash that inherently follows after this sort of period of supposed act progress. Almost daily protests, peaceful protests during the daytime, and of course, some incidents in the evening, like we showed you with the building. The country has been gripped this week from coast to coast by protests and violence after the death on Monday of George Floyd. But when the sun comes up, 
are protests like this fueling this war on law enforcement. Their agenda is it's okay to go ahead and kill cops. No, this is a movement that promotes the execution of, of, of police officers. Why has the Black Lives Movement, uh, Black Lives Matter movement, not been classified yet as a hate group, hate group, hate group? I think they're a hate group. This conversation is important to keep in mind when we discuss the rise of the BLM movement in the past decade. We're recording this coming off of a summer of unrest in the United States. In the wake of the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Elijah McClain, and so many others at the hands of police, we are seeing the American people gather in unprecedented numbers. Terms like defund the police and ACAB, or all cops are bastards, have emerged as a response. Yet depending on who you ask, the unrest and mass gatherings we are seeing are either protests for justice or riots of angry people under the guise of equality to create chaos. On one hand, right, suppose it, right, progressive thinkers, folks and organizations articulate that this is a sort of righteous anger, a righteous response to systemic violence, to systemic racism, and to a culture of white supremacy that has far too long sort of used violence as a mechanism against people of color and particularly against black people. And so the moment you see black people respond to violence with violence, then we have a very different response to that even amongst progressive thought. So I think you see that in characterized in the media as such. On the second part of your question in talking about sort of anger narrative, right? This is not new. You see the height of the Black uh, power movement that emerges following shortly after the Civil Rights Movement that becomes a different strand, this more vocal, this more aggressive front where right, Black people were no longer predominantly following Martin Luther King, nonviolent, passive sort of philosophy. And that's not to discount King because King does have these periods where King advocates for a sort of violence that's less talked about and less studied, and I guess that's probably really a different podcast and a different book. So this idea of Black people as angry, as rageful, as unjustified in their rage is just a part of historical continuum that we've always seen, because then that justifies um, the state to respond. Uh, to think of Black people as sort of emotionally responsive and not sort of rationally responsive. So the conservative right has worked to undermine the legitimacy of institutions of fact, learning, and truth, such as science, academia, and journalism. How can the media work to undo racist discourse and disinformation when so many people remain securely within conservative or alternative media bubbles? Well, I must admit that I'm not very hopeful about that, right? I think, again, if we going back to history, right, this is, again, a part of a continuum to where traditionally conservatives tend to think that the media is controlled by elites. That narrative sort of recycled over and over. But we know that's not accurate. We know that the media is predominantly a conservative uh, vessel and has always been and funded by white conservative politicians and white conservative businessmen. That ranges sort of the gamut. And so I'm not very, I'm not always optimistic about that media can particularly do anything beyond highlighting underground media, these independent agencies who do have a little more control over ideas, over information that gets circulated. I still think of Twitter as being the underground, as this sort of undercommons, as cultural critic Fred Bowden might call it, the black undercommons, to where you see black people and brown folks and other minority communities engage the news on their sort of own terms, under their own cultural traditions, without sort of having to rely on Fox or MSNBC or these sort of dominant organs that sort of only paint these particular type of narratives. Because the question 
isn't how necessarily black people are represented, but it's who gets to speak for black people, right? And so those medias are all, we will never allow a common folk on the street, black people who actually experience probably the brunt of this, the weight of American racism, to really speak about our plight, about the, condi- the existential conditions. You're, you're going to political thinkers, you're going to academics to talk about folks who live on the street and who fight the fight every day. So I think we've always had to uh, really talk more seriously about these independent sort of news sources, uh, these online platforms that, for better or for worse, that gives a sort of platform, a voice to people who um, historically have been sort of counted out for, for, ver- for a variety of reasons. There is something to be said about representation. I do think these sort of organizations that are funding like black creatives, brown creatives, queer creatives, these are viable organizations and these are viable political right projects. I believe these are political projects because one, it does give opportunities and it elevates the sort of uh, presence of these folks who have always sort of been doing the work on the margins outside of the mainstream, but don't have the same resources as you know your everyday white person or middle-class folk who goes into the film industry. If you don't have the resources, usually you don't can't afford to go to film school if you don't, or inherently middle-class, or you don't want to accrue $100,000 worth of debt, right? So I think it does speak to the sort of viability of these types of organizations that are giving young Black creatives these opportunities. I mean, the immediately that sort of comes to mind is to think of people like the sort of rise of Ava DuVernay, who's in creating the wonderful opportunities in film that accurately, I think, depicts a host of sort of Black identities. She's not, so she engages Blackness on these multiple registers beyond this essentialized notion of this is the Black person's struggle, this is what a Black person does and thinks. No, she, she showcases these various identities, dominant and marginal, right? Queer and not queer, right? Southern and Northern, right? She gives you a host of things to latch on to. So I do think there's something positive to talk about ways that more Black creators, not only sort of showing Black presence, but really complicating the notion of what we think Black is. Because the moment that you think you got it and you can define it, that's the moment that you, you're ready to, to trap it and lock it into this canon that you could easily perpetuate these same stereotypes and get offered Black um, actors these same roles that are highly problematic. So I do think we're, we are seeing a more and I hate the word progressive, but I do think we are seeing a more broader and wider open discourse about what a Black creator can do and who they can engage and what a Black actor or actress or Black thinker can say and do and perform, how they can perform and show up in the world. So, Although films and TV shows with better minority representation have continued to grow, Stereotypes fall through the cracks, especially when we look at who is making these films, usually white people. Can you discuss flawed, regressive portrayals of race relations in movies or TV shows from the last few years? And where do they stumble? And what particular harm do they do? And how can we change this? That's a powerful question. So I think on one hand, we are seeing this cultural renaissance. We are seeing or film that depict and display black people in a sort of range of social locations and cultural scripts and tropes and uh, geographies. But I do think oftentimes we still fall back on key roles, black cops, right, who are you know, 
crooked cops, right? You have the black domestic workers, such as the help. Even if, right, you have well and good intentions, I just think that sort of narrative becomes a pervasive. So not that it's inherently bad, but I think it becomes pervasive in that then you say, see, white people don't hate black people. See, right? Look at Black Lives Matter. They have white people in the organization. We have anti-racist white folks. And so you think we've arrived, right? We think they're anti-racist, thus they never have to check moments in which they're anti-black, or they never have to check these moments in which they sort of overstep their bounds or think they're sort of performing blackness by being in solidarity or by being in presence uh, with black folks. So I think a lot of films sort of do that. And I think that's a very dangerous move. Black culture is America's largest commodity, and this rings most true when we see the rise of rap in mainstream music. Yet the same young white listeners consuming this culture and music are often the same people who are anti-BLM. What is the disconnect? Well, think about it. Again, I think the part of that is, one, I can engage music on my own terms without having to be the music. So there's a disconnect comes to the sort of the moment that we can listen, consume music without having to be in relationship to what the music is actually, the message of the music. And so I think a lot of people that hip-hop think listeners, blues listeners specifically on our own time, my issue is always that we get caught up in beats. We get caught up in the sounds, but we don't pay attention to the lyrics or the lyrics just becomes, you know, something we say at the clubs and not, you know, it's a rally, but it's we don't really give, I think, serious thought to what the words are inviting us to do and to think about in trouble. I also think class T a lot has always been the case or for a long time, specifically since right at the height of sort of gangster rap in the late 80s, early 90s, you're seeing middle class white kids engage this music but the notion that that's not the message that you get the message sort of that you get is that these are inner city ghetto black kids who are listening to hip-hop and it's only them and all they want to do is use drugs and cause violence and have sex and be lascivious and you know lazy and draw on the resources of the government without right contributing anything to society that's not really who the community of listeners was it's people who can participate in the culture because hip-hop is sort of perpetuated also by not only listening but by the doing by a buying right by the paraphernalia of hip-hop clothing right to jewelry who can afford that who's paying for that stuff it's not your everyday black folk it's a middle class and that's oftentimes becomes white teenagers and people are always shocked by that and i'm never shocked by that because that's i don't think we engage class enough when we think about culture and, and music and art in particular but it's very classes all of it and black culture is no different, I think, in that regards from or falling victim to some of those sort of same pitfalls of, of sort of these class struggles. So I really think we need to think more seriously about class struggles. And then if I think if you do, this all makes perfect sense when we engage class in such a way that I could participate in another culture and have because I have access to resources to participate without having to think about the sort of political uh, content that's latent, that's under that. So I think we water down music, right? We make it, you know, a headbanger, right? Or we make it a feel-good thing, but we don't have to think about the conditions in which that music was created. We don't have to think about the communities in which those artists are engaging and where they come from. We don't have to think about that. 
Certain films or shows seem to be taking on new meaning for audiences in the current moment of the Black Lives Matter movement. Leanne, I'm so sorry. We didn't intend to... No, we didn't, really. I think what you're doing is so great. To open up your home to him and... Honey, you're changing that boy's life. No. He's changing my... Could this be in some way a measure of cultural change? Yes, I think so. Speaking of Blindside, that was one of my favorite movies um, of all time. And then, of course, you know, I think of the word that sort of comes to mind is consciousness or raising your consciousness. So I think when you come to a level of heightened political consciousness, you think about everything that you've learned in a sort of different lens. Right, you subject uh, everything to scrutiny that you thought you held. Right, I think of Descartes, like this, the Cartesian skepticism. Right, when he realizes that everything can be put into doubt when you think about it in a different sort of lens. Is this just a dream? Right, are these experiences really my own experiences? Am I sharing these experiences? So I think of consciousness as sort of having that potency and this rhetorical urgency that makes us sort of think that, or hopefully, right think differently about some of the things that we've always taken, these tacit presuppositions and dogmas that we've just passively accepted because it was our life. That's just what it was. And you didn't, you, you're always taught, as particularly if you grew up in probably black or brown communities, you're taught that this is just what it is. You don't question those, those sort of things. You just follow sort of orders. And so I think education does something to us, or it should. That's the point, I think, of a liberal arts education or a social science education or degree is to subject everything to this sort of critical disposition. And so Black Lives Matter just seems to be potent or happens to be at the forefront of many people's sort of consciousness, regardless of where they sort of sit on that continuum. It's the civil rights moment. And so everything is sort of clouded or read through that lens. So I think regardless of where you feel, you're now, you might be reading right things in the moment that right that we are in, right? I think of James Baldwin off who, who says that the artist's job is to reflect the times, to speak, right? Both and Nina Simone follows up with a sort of very similar message, right? You reflect the times that you're in. And I think that's no different from us, whether we're, you know, we're thinkers, we're writers, we're creatives, we're scientists, right? You can't be a dispassionate, disconnected scientist. You can't, you can no longer afford to be a disconnected artist who's, you know, laboring away in a far away in their own studio, away from the world. You can't do that now. Right, because you, you have a social responsibility at this time and, and more people are holding people accountable to this sort of social responsibility that we have that oftentimes is diametrically opposed to the notion of this individual, rugged individual sort of notion that we like to think has made so many people. And we know that's not true, right? We're a part of a society and society is a part of us. You don't escape that regardless of whether you tell that narrative or not. In recent years, there has been a rise in educational films such as Ava DuVernay's 13th, a documentary film that explores America's mass incarceration system. In March of 2015, we had tens of thousands of people come to Selma uh, to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the crossing of the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And very few of those people realized that nearly 30% of the black male population of Alabama today has permanently lost the right to vote as a result of a criminal conviction. Others have taken on the form of historical or biographical dramas, such as HBO's Watchmen. Go. 
or fictional films like Queen and Slim, which explores issues like police brutality. Keep your hands where I can Why is he under arrest? What is your badge number? Chill, just chill! I'm reaching for my cell phone! William says films and televisions can very well play a role in promoting racial justice. Netflix has a whole section de dedicated to like black film and movies. See the Oscars now sort of changing their criteria for who can win best motion pick. They're requiring now that certain films have a certain level of representation and higher, um, a di more diverse workforce and certain high highlight you know, different these sort of different roles and give opportunities to minority communities. So you're seeing a sort of a penalty for not actually being diverse anymore. And so I think you are going to see, right, film and, and, and TV be at the sort of forefront of the social justice efforts that if you don't change your hiring practices, if you don't change the roles or offer these opportunities to people who are qualified, right, we're not saying, these, not saying, these institutions are not saying give roles to people because they're Black or give roles to people because they're, you know, Latinx, no, or because they're queer, et cetera. These roles are saying these people are also qualified. They just keep being overlooked because you keep showing roles that highlight straight people, right? Or they, they only highlight white these white roles, like offer, expand your consciousness. Think of your movies and your creative endeavors right, as having a larger sort of pool as a bigger project um, that can really engage various and racial and gender communities. So I do think, yes, that film is being at the forefront of that we're, we, and we keep seeing that with some of these new and exciting producers and executive producers coming on the scenes and these writers, right? They're hiring younger writers. They're hiring, like I know friends who are being hired as writers for various documentaries and, and independent films and people who are very qualified but never had have been overlooked, right? Because they didn't go that traditional route. They didn't go to film school. They didn't go to Juilliard or NYU or, you know, Brown or Yale, School of Drama, right? Whatever have you. So um, I think we're thinking of who can be creative, that you don't have to always meet these sort of academic criteria to be an artist. Because we know that is a relatively new phenomenon of art school. Most people in the 60s and 70s, these Black artists, were not going to school. They were just talented people who sold street art, right? They spoke literally, quite literally to the people. And so I think you see that, I'm not gonna say a full return to that, but I think you are seeing a sort of drawing in that sort of discourse again. It's in vogue now to be a street artist or to be a socially engaged artist rather than someone who's in a you know, fancy in the Brooklyn Museum who's doing high art, uh, avant-garde, guard, right? Art is seeing, I think, a different expectation or a question of why aren't you engaging? So I think that's exciting, and I do think there's something to be said about that. Black people diversify away from villainization and stereotypes and cover topics like sexuality, which is something difficult for some Black communities to confront. So eloquently done in Moonlight and the new Netflix documentary Disclosure, where do you find the intersection of Black Lives Matter and the LGBTQ plus community represented in film and television? Yeah, let's start kind of where you where you pick up with the examples that you offer. 
um, film like Moonlight, the television shows such as Pose, um, now with P Valley, that has taken the world by storm, and I love it. It's on Stars if you haven't seen P Valley. Oh, it's amazing. That really highlight these queer and southern and rural sort of identities and people that you don't always see characterized in a positive light, and you're seeing these sort of recharacterizations, right? So Black Lives Matter, I think beautifully sort of intersects in that way. You think about the founders of Black Lives Matter are queer, queer women of color, queer black women. So their political project is very much intersectional and very much about gender justice and racial justice and identity. So I really think films that do this work are really engaging Black Lives Matter, whether we want to talk about directly or sort of abstractly, they are because you're engaging issues of structure and power. Who has the power? who has power to be represented. Because if you're represented in a positive light, there is some social power to that. Who has, right, who's present, who's salient, which, whose identities are salient, and why do they get, right, do they get a fair hearing in the public court? We are seeing, I think, a sort of record amount, and I'm not saying that's it's sufficient anymore, but I'm still saying you are seeing more films sort of in cartoons, in documentaries, all types of different mediums really sort of highlight there's different people out here. And to sort of speak to the sort of historical maybe trajectory of the ways that Black people have engaged gender and sexuality, I think we have this very negative connotation, right, when we think about how you know, Black communities sort of treat sexuality or gender differences. And I think that's really not my experience. And I'm from the South. Right. And so it's a very sort of maybe unspoken community. You don't always talk about gender differences or queer folks, uh, but they're always in your family. And in my experiences, they're always treated not much different than anybody else in your, in your families. Right. So, I mean, especially if you have, have ever been to a black church, right, you see that um, from the choir stands to the ministers, oftentimes to people who hold leadership positions, right? Actually, if you look at the data, it shows that Black men in particular are actually more progressive when you come to thinking to thoughts about gender um, differences and about uh, gender performances, right? And so we often think, oh, well, it's only Black women who are, you know, progressive. That's not always the case, actually, because typically um, Black women follow trappings to sort of the church, right? And our church have a very sort of conservative message about who, about homosexuality or heterosexuality. I just don't think we have um, accurate language to reflect some ways that Black community engages um, gender. And I think these films are sort of raising these same sort of problems and really problematizing these negative stereotypes about Black people as back, being a backwards people, right? I think Pose really does that. I think if you, I don't know if you all have seen P Valley, but P Valley really brings all those, these issues we're talking about really to the fore, or uh, Ava DuVernay's Queen Sugar. These same sort of issues, right? Protests, right? Um, they're using Black Lives Matter, clearly alluding to Black Lives Matter. Several of the episodes um, have highlight queer Black women, they highlight successful Black women, they highlight a rural Southerners, right, who are super progressive for their time or, or even for their geographic uh, location, and fighting the white supremacy on issues of land justice and racial justice. So I think we have to really think through the ways that film is doing some very good work in terms of raising questions, if anything, right? I think film can make us 
question some of our assumptions, even if we don't change those assumptions, it sort of at least introduces this idea that there's a range of black folks and they don't all do X or they don't all do Y, but we are, right, we're, we're, we're complicated people like anybody else. I mean, we live in the contradictions just like anybody else. When asked how anti-racists could encourage white audiences to watch films or shows dealing with race issues in this country, Williams had this to say. I mean, colleges, <laughs> right? I, I do think of, go back to education here because that's my experience. So I do, I have seen people, right, be introduced to ideas and concepts via film in ways that they would not engage a conversation about racial justice or social justice, right? Because film seems to be a passive thing, right? I could just watch that, oh, it's just a movie, right? We don't oftentimes think about it as an ideology or actually able to change us fundamentally or change our ideas. But we know that film does, in certain ways, cause us to think and question, even if we don't verbally articulate that we're thinking about an idea in a different way. So I think film has this sort of ability because of its medium to push these conversations forward in ways that might, to people who might be resistant otherwise, to a conversation, right? I think those are very different because we know like research shows, right, just through common conversation, we oftentimes reject messages that fall into contradiction with our own sort of political ideologies, even when we're introduced with counter evidence. But that's right, basic social theory. My communication theory that tells us that most people do not fundamentally change their ideas in conversation or even in, in an interaction. Film has that sort of elasticity and that flexibility because it's enduring, right? So you can keep going back to that film, right? You might not like all of it, but you're, there's going to be something that you sort of latch on to for whatever reason. And then you're like, oh, all of a sudden you're sort of talking about these conversations in different ways and it just happens. Masterclass podcast is written and produced by students in the film studies program at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Created by Christian Buckley in 2019, podcast art designed by Sam Huntley. The Use of Manor House, a soundtrack by Simmings on the platform Invado Market, complies under the music standard license. I want to thank my wonderful co-host Eleanor for helping create this incredible mini-series. She's unfortunately stepping away from the podcast, but has enjoyed her time working with you masterclass. I'd like to welcome Emily Coe, who will be my new co-host this upcoming spring. Hi, listeners. My name is Emily. I am currently a junior majoring in philosophy and psych with a film studies certificate, and I am so excited to be working with Jackie and to be your new co-host starting next semester. A little bit about me, I've always loved film. Film has always been a big part of my life. I mean, my parents and I have this awesome tradition where during the holiday season, we go to the movies and watch like three movies in a row. Obviously not happening this year, but we will still be watching a lot of movies at home. I guess we're closer to our fridge, so there's that. Some of my favorite films include Hereditary, Loving Vincent, and The Shape of Water. So you can see that I really love all types of films. I'm really excited to be talking about new films that are coming out in 2021 and learning from those conversations, and I'm just really happy to be part of this podcast in general, so keep an eye out for those future new episodes. 
You Masterclass will be back in the spring of 2021 with some new and exciting content you won't want to miss. I'm Eleanor Rose. And I'm Jackie Celestino. See you soon.